Well, good evening, everybody. It's good to have you join us tonight for our live stream of the uh, study tonight that the, the Lord has led us into. And for those of you who didn't join us last week, uh, we started a study in the book of Revelation. And uh, the last time I taught in depth through this book was in 07 and in 08. And of course, as you know, a lot has happened in the world since then. And so I purposed not to just, you know, regurgitate the study from back then, but to update it with fresh information, including current events that have taken place on the world scene since then. Uh, but also I want to draw from other biblical resources uh, in an effort to make this study better than it was uh, last time we did it by incorporating, you know, fresh insights and perspectives from teachers I respect that will hopefully make this new study in the book of Revelation more of a blessing to everyone, kind of Revelation 2.0, if you will. Um, but having said that, let me start with a quote from Donald Gray Barnhouse, who uh, was with the Lord, very godly man, though, when he was alive, uh, a pastor for many, many years. He wrote uh, one of the best commentaries on Revelation you'll ever find if you get a copy of it. I'd like to start with a quote from him. He said, and I quote, we are living in the strangest days that man has ever known. The world has passed through terrible times before, but never has the whole earth been so bound together in its wild plunging through one catastrophe after another as today. There have been wars down through the ages, but never wars that have touched so many nations as the conflicts through which we have passed in this generation. There have been political crises, but not on a scale that touched all the continents. Civilization has brought so many new means of communication that, that uh, the matters which affect one nation affect all. Events that take place in Europe and Asia become news that uh, vitally uh, concerns the farmer in the Mississippi Valley. Thoughtful Bible students agree, almost universally, that we are living near the end of the age, and that at any moment the outline of prophetic events preserved for us in Scripture will begin its course of fulfillment. The world will then rush rapidly through all the scenes of history which God has written in advance. Therefore, the book of Revelation is the book for the present hour. End quote. Now, guys, I know last week we... Um, finished the introduction to the book and got into chapter one, but if you'll indulge me just for a few minutes, uh, I'd like to revisit the introduction and to say a few more words that I believe will help you to properly interpret and, of course, better understand this incredible book uh, going forward in our studies. The book begins with the words, the revelation of Jesus Christ. The word revelation comes from the Greek word apocalyptus, which means to uncover, to reveal, or to make manifest. Now I bring this up again because many Christians, including many pastors, have decided not to read or study this book because they believe the book essentially is beyond understanding. Author and pastor Mark Hitchcock best summed up this thinking when he said, and I quote, The book of Revelation may be the most neglected book in the Bible. There are undoubtedly many reasons for this, one is that there are people who either claim or assume that no one can really understand what it means. They view Revelation the same way that Winston Churchill once described the Soviet Union as, and I'm quoting Churchill now, a riddle wrapped up in a mystery inside an enigma, end quote. Hitchcock goes on, with all the mystifying symbols and striking images that appear throughout the book, Many people despair of ever understanding the book. Even many pastors never preach on Revelation, or if they do, they preach only from the first three chapters. This neglect of the capstone of God's revelation for man is tragic. Revelation gives us the end of the story, just as Genesis gave us the beginning. He said not to not take the time to understand Revelation would be like reading a mesmerizing novel, but not finishing it to see how the story ends, end quote. Hitchcock, in his book on Revelation, said that the key to understanding the book of Revelation 
is to correctly interpret the symbols in the book. All right? However, unless a person approaches the symbols in the book with a few basic guidelines, he says, it, will often lead, uh, it often leads to two main traps that most people fall into. The first one we just alluded to, but he said uh, the first trap is that uh, people let the imagery and symbolism overwhelm them into thinking that the presence of so many symbols means the book cannot be understood at all. They say that we're able to, you know, discern that the book talks about a cosmic struggle between good and evil. That's true, but that none of the specific details can be understood. Therefore, the book essentially is a sealed book. But as we said last time, guys, that concept is in that concept is in direct conflict with the very title of the book, the unveiling. That's what apocalyptus means: the unveiling, the unsealing of Jesus Christ. I mean, far from being a sealed book that God never never intended anyone to understand, something that, you know, he wants to be hidden from us, this book is something that God is opening, unveiling, unsealing to our understanding, even to the point of pronouncing a special blessing upon those who, and I'm quoting from, from verse 3, hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it. That's a special blessing to those who will read, study, uh, and uh, attempt to apply into their lives the things written in this book. Mark Hitchcock says, and I quote again from him, his book, he said, the key to unlocking the meaning of Revelation is to realize that most of what is in the book, listen, the very important, is not new information. There's an old saying that Revelation is the grand central station of the Bible because it's where all the trains of thought throughout the whole Bible come in. While it is certainly true that Revelation looks ahead and reveals the future, it also looks back and brings together all the threads running through the first 65 books of the Bible. Revelation contains 404 verses and 275 of them allude back to the Old Testament. Revelation has no direct quotations from the Old Testament in it, but it contains a total of 550 allusions or references which appear in those 278 verses back to the Old Testament, end quote. Now, guys, I believe in part, or excuse me, this, I believe, is part of the blessing God promised upon those who read and study this book. It will, it will take you on a journey practically through every book of the Old Testament and act as a key unlocking the symbolisms in those books. But the second extreme position that Hick, Hitchcock mentions, he says the first is thinking that nobody can understand the book, so it's sealed and so that's all there is to it. The other extreme, though, that Hitchcock says uh, is unchecked speculation and sensationalism that ma manipulates all the symbols so that they represent certain people or events of our day, in our time, okay? In other words, the person who approaches Revelation this way, okay, uh, and all the symbols in the book, they approach it with the idea that <laughs> they have license from God to interpret the text and symbols, listen, however the Holy Spirit leads them. However the Holy Spirit leads them. The problem is that those who approach the book with this kind of hyper- subjectivity often if not always will come away with some very strange if not dangerous interpretations he said and i quote when properly interpreting a symbol in revelation the reader must recognize that all the symbols in the book are explained either in revelation itself or in other parts of the bible all caps we cannot make them mean whatever we want them to mean he, he goes on, when symbols are employed, they refer to something that is, listen, literal, literal. Symbols are not just symbols of nothing. They aren't meaningless. They aren't just symbols of symbols. They refer to something that is literal. No interpreter has the freedom to make a symbol mean whatever he or she wants. Scripture sets the parameters for our interpretation of symbols. The infallible guide to the meaning of these symbols is the word of God, end quote. Now, guys, I understand a lot of people stay away from the book of Revelation because it's kind of intimidating. Again, a lot of symbols and things. I, I get that. 
But I believe one of the main reasons that people don't read and study this book is not because they have difficulty, listen, understanding what it is saying, but because they have a hard time accepting what it is saying. It's like Mark, it's like Mark Twain once said, and I quote, It's not the parts of the Bible that I don't understand that trouble me. It's the parts of the Bible that I do understand that trouble me, end quote. All right, let's jump in. Starting again with verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things, which must shortly take place. Hang on to that. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads uh, and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. Now, those two statements in verse 1, things in this book must must shortly take place. And then in verse 3, for the time is near. Um, Let me just say this first. In the introduction last week, I mentioned the four main views of the book of Revelation. They are the preterist view, the historical view, the idealist view, and the futurist view. That's the prophetic view. That's the one I hold to and many others. But I'd like to just take a a, a few minutes uh, to single out the preterist view just for a little bit and uh, briefly comment on it since it has gained uh, popularity in the recent years since church leaders like R.C. Sproul and Hank Hennegraaff have embraced one branch of it. That's what's called partial preterism. But uh, preterists believe in, in, you know, preterism, uh, or the word preterist means past, okay? Let me just read, uh, I was reading Mark Hitchcock's book. I'm trying to read some new books on Revelation from the ones I read to do the first study, and I found his especially uh, uh, interesting. So I want to quote one more passage from his book on Revelation, then we'll jump into the study again. But this is on preterism, and I wanted to share it because I do think it's important. I didn't really touch on it too much last week, but uh, you're going to probably come across those who hold to this view. And uh, so I'll just read what he says. His book then goes into detail on uh, why preterism is not biblical. It's not true. But um, anyways, he said, and I quote, and again, he's speaking on the preterist view, which means past. All right. And he had this to say, and I quote, this view holds that revelation is primarily a prophecy of events surrounding the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., There are two main branches of preterism, partial, which is moderate preterism, and full, which is extreme or radical preterism. R.C. Sproul, a partial preterist, defines the preterist approach this way, and I'm quoting him, an eschatological viewpoint. Eschatology is the study of last things or end times, okay? Uh, he uh, uh, He said preterists argue not only that the kingdom is a present... I'm sorry, let me back up. I missed up. He said, said, an eschatological viewpoint that places many or all eschatological events in the past, especially during the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. End quote for Sproul. Hitchcock goes on, preterists believe that Christ returned in AD 70 during the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans. Sproul says, and I quote, Preterists argue not only that the kingdom is a present reality, the kingdom is here, but also that in a real historical event, the parousia, in other words, Christ's return, has already occurred. They believe that Nero was the beast of Revelation 13, that the seal, trumpet, and bold judgments were judgments on unfaithful Israel, that Babylon in Revelation 17, chapter 17 and 18 was Jerusalem, and that Revelation 19 describes the coming of Jesus in 70 AD to destroy Jerusalem. The primary distinction between partial and full preterists is that partial preterists, while maintaining that most of Revelation, book of Revelation, has already been fulfilled in the past, still believe in a future second coming of Christ. Full preterists believe that all prophecies, including those pertaining to 
uh, the second coming, and to the resurrection of believers. These are past events already taking place. They view the resurrection as spiritual. According to this view, we are beyond the millennium. Millennium's over. Millennial kingdom's over, all right? Uh, and we are presently in the new heaven and new earth. Now, folks, if we are right now in the new heaven and new earth, the Bible promises, I got to tell you, I'm really disappointed. I had higher hopes for that period of, of time, all right? Of course, we're not there. It's ridiculous, okay? Uh, Hitchcock ends by saying, but reject, by rejecting orthodox biblical truths about the second coming of Christ, the bodily resurrection, and the final judgment, full preterists are outside the pale of orthodox Christianity, end quote. So I had to get that off my chest. I, I read that today. I got to share that, okay? All right, back in Revelation 1, verse 4. John to the seven churches, which are in Asia, as we said last week, this is Asia Minor or, or modern-day Turkey, Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. Jesus Christ is the faithful witness. Remember now, a witness testifies to what they have seen. All right. If you remember how John opened his gospel, in chapter 1, verse 18, he said these words. He said, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. All right? No one has seen God in all of His fullness and glory, primarily because no one can look upon God in that way and live. We, we learn that from Exodus 33, verse 20. Nobody can see the full glory of God. In other words, kind of see God face to face and live. For some reason, it would end our lives. We would be vaporized, okay? And so we are told that in Scripture. Beside, besides, God is invisible and therefore cannot be seen with our human physical eyes. And yet, Paul the Apostle said of Jesus in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, that he is the image of the invisible God. The word image was used of an image made by impression, as when Caesar's image was stamped on a coin. Paul is telling us that God the Father, listen, stamped his image on human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, which means that Jesus was the exact manifestation of God in human form. And this guy's allowed man to see what God was like. See, God is spirit. And is therefore invisible, but through the incarnation, the invisible God became a visible flesh and blood man. You remember in the upper room the night before the crucifixion, as they were observing the Passover, at one point Philip said to the Lord Jesus, he said, Lord, show us the Father and we'll be satisfied. To which Jesus responded in John 14, verse 9, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. As Paul would go on to say, I am the exact image of the Father. Uh, he stamped himself on me in the incarnation. All right? Now the word translated declared, again, John 1.18, uh, the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. Uh, is, a, is a, a Greek word that gives us our English word exegesis, which means to explain or to unfold. Jesus explained or unfolded the Father to us. Remember, we're still talking about Jesus being the faithful witness, Revelation 1 verse 5. And that means he testified of the Father by declaring him faithfully to this world during his earthly ministry. Now, Jesus himself affirmed that when he said in his high priestly prayer in John 17, verse 4, again, this is now probably the morning of his crucifixion, early morning, uh, as they were still making their way to the Mount of Olives, maybe midnight, some time around there, um, but hours from the cross. And at one point, Jesus prays to his father, his high priestly prayers, it's called in John 17. He said in verse 4, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work 
which you have given me to do. Now, Jesus' work was, was manifold, all right? Uh, he's talking about the work of, of uh, revealing or declaring the Father to this world. In that regard, that work was done. Of course, the work of redemption was not yet finished because he hadn't gone to the cross yet. But in this context, he's talking about he had come to the earth because you have to understand something. In the Old Testament, because Israel sinned so much, got into idolatry and so on, they almost always saw the wrath of God, the vengeance of God, uh, the justice uh, of God. And they didn't really know him as a loving, merciful God. Yes, he did say that through Moses. I'm gracious and loving and merciful and kind. He did mention that. But, but in practicality, because they were so, um, you know, rebellious and, and into idolatry, uh, most often they saw God's judgment. And so they got a warped concept of what God was really like. And Jesus came to the earth in part, yes, to die for our sins. That was his main mission but also to reveal to this world what God the Father was really like. He's not a vengeful, angry God who, who delights in showing and uh, um, destroying and judging people. No, he's kind and merciful and gracious. And Jesus demonstrated that through his own life. And so when he said, Father, I've glorified your name, the word glory means God's glory are his, uh, his attributes. And when Jesus said, I have glorified your name, he's saying, Father, I have, I have lived a life that has manifested who you really are, your attributes, your love, mercy, grace, and so on. All these things that uh, Israel didn't really see for so many centuries. Uh, I have glorified your name. In other words, I have declared who you really are to the people of this world. Guys, this was in fulfillment of John 1, 18. No one has seen God at any time. But the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. And then again, Revelation 1, verse 5, Jesus Christ is the faithful witness. He faithfully testified uh, of the Father. Jesus Christ has revealed the invisible God to mankind in a way that we could have never come to understand or know him through our own human logic and reason. Let me just digress for a minute because that's important. We're talking about, you know, uh, God revealing himself and so on. You, you, you understand, Christianity claims to be a revealed truth, a revealed truth. A revelation is something that is made known to us by God. It is something that would be impossible for us to know through our own human logic or intelligence or normal thought processes. It is knowledge that comes through divine input. Job, many centuries ago, asked the question, can a man by searching find God? And the answer is no. No, man can never find the supernatural God through uh, logical means or an intellectual quest. Not going to happen. The Bible says that God is spirit, who lives in the spirit realm. Spirits, of course, in the spirit realm can bridge that, uh, you know, can, it can go from one realm to the other. They can interact with people in the physical realm. But we, uh, being, you know, physical human beings, we are trapped in this physical realm, all right? We are trapped. They can come and interact with us, but we can't interact with them uh, because we can't go from one realm to the other as they can. We can't move from the physical to the spiritual, but they can do that. They can go from the spiritual to the physical, and they do it all the time. God's angels, of course, and Satan's angels and demons as well. But guys, I just want to say that because man is physical and God is spirit, there is no way that a physical human being trapped in a box we call this four-dimensional physical universe, height, width, uh, height, width depth, and time, four dimensions, there is no way that we, trapped in this box, can, through the use of techniques like, you know, visualization, transcendental meditation, you know, poke a hole in the box, climb out, and find God. A lot of people think they can, but they can't. It's all spiritual deception, all right? But I don't care uh, how long you assume the lotus position, stare at your navel and go, um, you're not going to break out of the box and find God in the supernatural realm. Not going to happen. I don't care how sincere a person is and how hard he or she tries. 
they are incapable of reaching beyond the boundaries of the physical natural realm that they are trapped in. We're all trapped in. And therefore, as we're trapped in this physical realm, um, we're incapable of knowing or understanding anything about the supernatural God. One pastor said it well when he said, and I quote, We can't expect the bug in the bottle to understand the little boy that put it there any more than we can expect the natural man with his natural capacities to understand the supernatural God unless that God chose to condescend and reveal himself to man, end quote. And folks, that's exactly what God did. God did this by giving us special revelation. Uh, that's what the theologians call the Bible. The Bible is God's special revelation to man, which is essentially came about because God invaded the natural realm, the box we live in, to communicate to us something about himself, many things about himself, and his will for our lives. There's two kinds of revelation that theologians talk about. There's general revelation, which is the creation. The creation declares the glory of God. Firmament shows forth his handiwork and so on. So the creation does a, a preach of God's existence. God has revealed himself in the creation, so much so that Paul said in Romans chapter 1, anyone who claims there is no God, uh, pleads ignorant, will be held accountable on the day of judgment because God has made his... Um, uh, his, uh, you know, existence so clear from just the creation that he will hold them accountable. I mean, there are some truths that are self-evident. Um, you know, I'm in a house right now, okay? And uh, I don't have to prove to you somebody made this house. The fact that it's here means it had to have, you know, an architect and construction people and things to put it together. You can't have a painting without a painter. You can't have a sculpture without a sculptor. I mean, some truths are self-evident. God didn't start the Bible by saying, now look, I'm God, let me tell you why you should know I'm God. He didn't begin by trying to prove his existence. He just It just simply starts out in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The creation was sufficient revelation to bear testimony that God was real. So that's general revelation. However, it doesn't give us any specific information about God. It doesn't tell us what he's like doesn't even give us his name. That's where special revelation comes in, where God kind of gets up close and personal with man uh, by revealing intimate details of himself, what he's like, what he expects of us, even telling, even telling us what happens when we die and, and so on and so forth. But all these things come to us through special revelation, or in other words, are found in the pages of the Word of God. Now, God has revealed divine truth to us in the past in different ways, through prophets, angels, dreams, visions, okay? But by far, guys, the greatest revelation was the incarnation. The greatest revelation was the incarnation, where God became flesh and dwelt among us. God revealed himself through Jesus, the invisible God becoming a flesh and blood visible human being. He revealed him uh, to us Things about God that we would never have known. Possibly not even from reading the Bible itself. Uh, although the Bible is Jesus. He said uh, the volume of the book it is written of me. But Jesus Christ was the full disclosure, if I could say that, of God's revelation to man as to who he is. And we, we read this, uh, we, we, we see this in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, which says to us, God, who at different times and in various ways, spoke in time past to the fathers, the patriarchs, by the prophets, in other ways, angels, dreams, visions, as I said, but has in these last days spoken to us by his son. Wow. Now, what did Jesus tell us? Well, he revealed the father, as we just said. He revealed the father to us and what the father was like, and most importantly, the way by which we could ascend to heaven someday and live with the Father and, of course, the Son and the Spirit, the whole Trinity, forever. Jesus said in John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. Now, we have to realize, and I know you do, but eternal life could only come to us through death, the death of our, excuse me, our Savior. All right, and that's what John goes on to talk about in verse 5. 
Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, listen, the firstborn from the dead. Now, guys, this doesn't mean that Jesus was the first one ever to be raised from the dead. We know in the Old Testament it records several that were raised physically from the dead. And then the New Testament records three uh, people raised from the dead. Uh, it was Jairus' daughter, the widow of Nain's son, and, of course, Lazarus. There might have been others. Those three we know were raised from the dead uh, and all. Uh, so Jesus was not the first to ever be raised from the dead. So what is John saying? Well, the Greek word for firstborn is protonikos. Protonikos. A word that can mean, listen, first in chronological order. That's true. As it says of Mary, she brought forth her firstborn son. Yes, he was the first in the chronology of the family, uh, those to be born. But this Greek word can also mean first in rank or first in the sense of superior position. In Jeremiah 31, verse 9, God calls Ephraim his firstborn. But was Ephraim really the firstborn son of Joseph? No. Manasseh was Joseph's literal firstborn. But although Ephraim was technically the second-born son of Joseph, God calls Ephraim his firstborn because Ephraim had prominence, prominence uh, over his brother in spiritual matters because of his heart for God and other some other things God elevated Ephraim above his brother, even though Manasseh was the firstborn physically, uh, in the eyes of God, Ephraim became the favored one, the one of superior position. All right, uh, his firstborn, God's firstborn, in the sense of superior one. We refer to uh, Melania Trump as the first lady of our country. Now, does this mean that she's the first lady who ever lived? Of course not. Uh, the term first lady refers to her position, her position, that it's superior, that of all the ladies in our nation, she has prominence over all of them because she is the president's wife. You get the idea, all right? So when John says that Jesus was the firstborn from the dead, it means that of all that had been resurrected before him, or all that would be raised after him, listen, his resurrection was ranked the highest or was of a superior nature than all the others because his resurrection paved the way for all believers in him to be raised from the dead never to die again. You see, you know, Lazarus, uh, he was raised from the dead, but he eventually died again. Uh, Jairus' daughter, same thing. The widow of Nain's son, same thing. They were all raised from the dead, but they all died again, all right? But Jesus was the first one to be raised from the dead, never to die again. And that guaranteed that all of us who believe in him will someday be raised from the dead, never to die again, to spend eternity with him in his kingdom. John 14, verse 19, because I live, Jesus said, you will live also, live forever, is the idea. All right, back in verse 5. It goes on to say, you know, Jesus, the faithful witness, firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. Now, guys, this speaks of his ultimate position during the millennial kingdom. You have to understand, and again, I know you do, he came the first time to die. He is going to come again to reign. See, his work is only partially fulfilled. Yes, he represented the Father properly, manifested the Father to this world. Yes, he went to the cross, died for our sins, securing our salvation. But that wasn't all that the Father intended for the Son. Uh, he is coming back again to establish a kingdom which the Father has promised him he was going to be king over this world. He bought and paid for it on Calvary's cross, but he hasn't taken possession of it yet. He will someday, and we think someday soon. Let me read to you just a few scriptures on this subject. There are dozens sprinkled throughout the Old and New Testament where Jesus is coming back to reign. That's his rightful place uh, because of what he has done. He bought and he, he purchased this world back from the usurper, back from Satan, who kind of stole it from Adam and Eve, Adam primarily, uh, in the garden. But um, Jesus Christ came to redeem it out of, the, out of Satan's grasp and will someday now take possession of what he's bought and paid for. But 
Psalm, you just write these down. Psalm 2, verses 6 through 8. It says, the Father is speaking, Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion, Jerusalem. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance, and the ends of the earth for your possession. He's coming back to take possession of this world he has bought and paid for. Jeremiah 23, verse 5. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness, talking about one of David's descendants, Messiah. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. That's the millennial kingdom. Boy, are we waiting for that, okay? And then another one, just one more, Zechariah 9, verse 9. Which says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout, O daughter of Zion, excuse me, shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now it's true, this is talking about his first coming, all right? And I wanted to bring this one out because he did come the first time to reign. Of course, he knew. Of course, God, the Godhead knew that he would be rejected and would be crucified. That was part of God's plan. But if Israel had received him when he came, when he rode into Jerusalem, that Palm Sunday, you know, as the disciples were throwing palm branches on the ground and they were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, save now, uh, you know, Hosanna to the son of David. They were saying, bring the kingdom, bring in the kingdom. See, they knew he, he had come to reign. They wanted him to reign. But of course, the nation, its leaders, had rejected him. But here's the thing. This is what I have been told, okay? In those days, if a king came riding up to your city on a donkey, it meant he was coming in peace. He was coming in peace. If he came riding up on a white horse, it was not good. It meant he was coming to make war. Jesus Christ came the first time presenting himself as king, riding a donkey. And that meant he was, he was uh, offering peace to, to, who, to Israel primarily. But you have to understand that in the garden, man rebelled against God, ate the forbidden fruit, and fell. At that point, man became the enemy of God. Uh, God had turned his back towards man. Man toward, uh, turned his back against, away from God. Uh, God turned his back away from man, I should say. And it was a picture of God and man now at enmity with each other. When Jesus died on the cross, the enmity was, uh, was uh, over in God's mind because sin had been satisfied. At that point, God turned toward man, extending his arms and saying, Come to me. I love you. I want to save you. My son has paid for your sins. There's nothing keeping you from coming to me and being a part of my family and my kingdom forever. Receive my son and live. Embrace the gospel, right? Um, and many have. Many have. Jesus Christ has come now 2,000 years ago. He's still offering peace to those who will come to him by faith and receive him as Lord and Savior. And he's, he, that, that coming on that donkey is still, you know, is still active. The Bible says, though, at one point, he will come again riding a white horse, Revelation 19, to make war. War against the rebels. War against those who have said, we don't want this man ruling over us, that have gathered in the valley of Megiddo, again, Revelation 19, to go to war against the Lord Jesus Christ as he comes back to the earth with his church and, and, uh, and myriads of angels to establish the kingdom. And he speaks the word and vaporizes this whole army in the valley of Megiddo that has gathered to make war with him. And we'll study that in detail when we get there in a, in a few years. But... Uh, the idea is that he is coming again to make war in preparation for him establishing a kingdom where the righteous will live in peace forever. All right, Revelation verse 5 again, chapter 1, verse 5. And from Jesus, the faithful witness, firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Wow, there's a lot here, guys. The last part of verse 5 should be translated, listen, to him who loves us, present tense, 
and has washed us, past tense, from our sins. It was God's love that came first. 1 John 4, 19, we love him because he first loved us, all right? God loved us first, and that motivated him to send his son, his only begotten son, to pay our sins, to pay for our sins on Calvary's cross and die in our place. When he did that, of course, God has been, you know, based on what Jesus Christ was going to do. He, Revelation 13, 8, the father saw Jesus on Calvary's cross even before the foundation of the world. So in the mind of God, Jesus had already died. Even in the Old Testament, he was drawing people to him out of his love. And anyone who would believe in coming Messiah and all the promises God had given about the Messiah would be saved. Of course, they were looking forward to the cross. We're looking back from it. It's all the cross. It's all Jesus, right? And so Jeremiah 31, verse 3, beautiful, very beautiful verse says, The Lord has appeared of old to me, saying, Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. I have drawn you. And then in the New Testament, John's Gospel, I believe, chapter 12, maybe 3, uh, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. People from every tribe, family, kindred, nation, language. I'm going to extend an invitation to the whole world that anybody who wants to can come and be saved. I love them. I'm lifted up from the earth. In other words, when I go to the cross and pay for their sins, it means that you know, as God has loved the whole world, and that's what John 3.16, for God... Uh, so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Again, God's love came first and caused him to act. He gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him and Jesus should not perish in hell, but have everlasting life. Now, the Greek word translated washed in Revelation 1 verse 5 is luo, the Greek word luo. And in this context, it means to be bathed all over to be bathed all over. In that culture, again, from what I have learned, what I was taught, in the morning, people would get up and they would take a bath, okay, where they would completely wash themselves from head to foot. They'd be completely clean, okay? A full bath in the morning uh, where they were cleansed completely. They called this luo, all right? A, a complete washing, a full bath. But then as they walked on dirt paths with open sandals throughout the day, their feet would become dirty. And they would need to be washed as they entered someone's house to eat and have fellowship with them, to eat and have fellowship with them. And so it was customary for the owner of the house, if they had servants, to keep a um, pitcher of water and a basin and a towel by the entrance. And when somebody would come, a visitor, uh, somebody that was going to be having dinner or whatever, uh, it was the job of the lowliest servant to wash their feet because they they didn't sit at tables they reclined on one arm on pillows with a table around a table that was just a flat piece of, of wood on the floor um, and they just kind of reclined at a 45 degree angle propping themselves up on one side well you know that meant your your head wasn't too far from somebody else's feet which would have been very unappetizing if they hadn't taken care of that by wash, washing the person's feet when they uh, came to the house. Now, of course, if the owner was too poor to have servants, it was his responsibility then to wash his uh, guest's feet. Uh, but that washing was called nipto in the Greek. In other words, it wasn't a full bath. They had already taken a bath in the morning. But nipto, which meant a partial washing, or in other words, the washing of their feet. Now, I bring this out because John uses the word uh, in uh, Revelation 1.5, luo, all right? And, well, let me just say this. You remember, again, uh, the night before the cross in the upper room and uh, how that, uh, you know, Jesus was going to be uh, dying the next day. And um, so the disciples are all kind of gathered around this table waiting to eat dinner. And um, they were arguing among themselves who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom, okay? Um, and, of course, if you're arguing uh, that you're going to be the greatest in the kingdom... You weren't going to take the position of the lowliest slave to wash feet. So none of them have, had washed anyone else's feet. Jesus saw this. 
He arose from the table at one point, took some water uh, in a pitcher, poured it in a basin, girded his waist with a towel, and began to wash the disciples' feet. Well, I'm sure that you saw 12 men who became as red as tomatoes in their faces because how embarrassing that their king had to wash their feet because they were too, too proud and arguing about how great they were going to be in the kingdom to wash each other's feet. And you remember how he came to Peter. And Peter said, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? He said, Lord, you're never going to wash my feet. And Jesus said, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part in me. And Peter said, well, then I'll, I'll take a bath, Lord. He said, no, uh, all those who have been washed only need to have their feet washed. Here's the thing. In the Greek, he is saying, Peter, if you don't let me niptoe your feet, because Peter was already saved. If you don't let me wash your feet, you have no part in me. Peter said, Lord, I'll take a bath. I'll just give me a full bath. You don't need a full bath. You're already saved. You just need to have your feet washed. Guys, the idea is in that passage, and you can look this up on your own, in John 13, in verses 5, 6, 8, 12, and 14, the word for wash there is nipto, all right, nipto. But in verse 10 of John 13, when Jesus said that um, once you've been washed, luo, you only need to have your feet washed, nipto. He was saying is once you've been saved, once you've been cleansed through the, you know, through my blood, which was going to happen the next morning, once you've been saved, you have been washed completely with the blood of Christ. So that now you're you're completely clean. Your sins are forgiven. But as we walk through this dirty world, this defiling world, and of course, why they consider the feet, the bottom of the feet, to be the dirtiest part of the body. Why? Because that was the part of the body that actually came in contact with the world. Symbolically, of course, we know what that means. We talk about our walk with the Lord. As we walk with the Lord, we have to walk in this dirty, filthy world, this defiled world. And we're going to pick up some of the defilement. You go to work and you're getting a drink around the water cooler and they're telling some filthy joke and you can't get out of there fast enough, but it gets stuck in your brain. Or just other things. You know how it goes. You're, you're, walk, you're it's going through the TV and you come across a commercial that is pretty bad. You, you try to quickly get away from it, but it plants images. When that happens, you need to have your feet washed in a sense. Uh, I think it was Ephesians 5.25. Paul talked about uh, washing ourselves in the water of the word. Come home. Get in the word, take, you know, wash the defilement away. It, it, the idea is once you're saved, you know, Jesus said, you don't need to be washed all over again, Luo, just need to have your feet washed. The idea is once we're saved, we don't need to get saved, have to be saved all over again. We pick up some of the defilement of the world. We just need to confess our sins. So that, that defilement we picked up that day uh, is washed away. This is where first John uh, chapter 1 verse 9, 9 comes into play. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I, I bring this up, guys, because I just want you to understand that there are those who believe that once you're saved, you can lose your salvation. You can lose your salvation uh, by you know being defiled and, and maybe uh, falling into some sins and so on. And so you have to get saved all over again. No. Because again, in, in uh, John 13, verse 10, let me read it to you. Jesus said, who, He who is bathed, that's the word luo, take a full bath, needs only to wash his feet, nipto. But it's completely clean. You are clean, but not all of you. You're all saved, but Judas. He's not saved, right? But I want to point this out that in verse 10, he says, he who is bathed is completely clean. And, and it's in the perfect tense in the Greek. What does that mean? When you put something in the perfect tense, it speaks of an action that, was, that happened in the past, but the effects of which continue into the present. You were saved at one point in the past. 
But as we read in 1 John 1, 7, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, continually cleanses you from all unrighteousness. So when you blow it, you don't have to be saved all over again, but you have to confess those sins to God. Again, you know, bringing your heart before him. And he promises if you confess your sins to me, I'm faithful and just to forgive, forgive you for those sins and to cleanse you again so that your fellowship with me is restored. That's the idea. Um, we have to keep our feet clean, in a sense. Keep our walk undefiled is the idea. Because we cannot have communion with our Lord if we don't. Again, let me repeat this. 1 John 13, verse 8, Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I don't wash you, you have no part with me. And again, the word translated part is meros, and it carries the meaning here of participation or having a share in someone or something. Let me just say this and we'll move on, okay? When God bathes us all over in salvation, he brings about our, listen, union with Christ. And that is a settled relationship that cannot change. However, our daily communion with Christ depends on us, on our keeping ourselves, as James put it in chapter 1, verse 27 of his epistle, unspotted from the world. Uh, we pick up defilements by just rubbing elbows with people in the world, all right? And so we need to confess those things, all right? Uh, we need to, uh, you know, when, when, we, when we're saved and washed completely, we are connected to Christ. We have union. That's everlasting. But our practical communion can be broken through sin. And that's why we need to keep confessing our sins and washing in the water of the word, as Paul the Apostle said. Look, someone has said, the Christian life consists of one bath, but many foot washings. Oh, one other thing. The word luo can also be translated loosed, loosed. It was used that way in Luke 19, verse 33. But uh, it says they were loosing. Uh, remember when Jesus had them? This is now uh, uh, Palm Sunday. He told them to go into the village and you'll find a, uh, a, a donkey and a, a, a donkey and its colt tied up. Unloose them. Well, it says, but as they were loosing the uh, colt, Luo, the owner said to them, why are you loosing <laughs> Luo, the colt? And you remember the story. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, we can apply that idea to that verse as well. That Jesus Christ loosed us. Uh, when we gave our heart to him, we received him as our Savior. He loosed us. His blood, yes, washed us, but it loosed us from the power of sin. Read Romans 6. Oh my goodness. Uh, you know, the power of sin was broken in our lives. Doesn't mean we can't still sin or that we don't sin. It's just that we're not the slaves of sin anymore. We have a choice now. Before we didn't, we were like dead fish floating downstream. We were just being carried away with the current of the world because this was Satan's world and we belonged to him, basically. But once we receive Christ, he looses us from the power of sin, makes us a brand new creation. We are, not, we are now more than conquerors through him who loves us. And I want to just say that. Notice the, uh, the um, changes of the tense in Revelation 1, verse 5. The one who loved us, past tense, and, excuse me, I'm sorry. <laughs> the one who, who uh, washed us, past tense, because we're already saved, and continues to love us, present tense. Love us. And that will never end. God will never stop loving you. He knew every sin you were going to ever commit before, um, you know, before you came to him and were saved and became his child. And so now that when you do sin, um, it's not that he stops loving you and disowns you. I mean, and, and, and it's not that you lose your salvation. That was a settled act in the past. The moment you got saved, you got saved forever. And now when you blow it, yeah, confess your sins. But the Father never stops loving us when we mess up. He never says, you know what, you've disappointed me and I didn't think you were going to act like this and I want you out of my family. Of course, he would never say. He knows us. He knows every sin we were going to commit before he ever made us. 
And uh, now that he has redeemed us and we are a part of his family, he'll never disown us. Guys, the blood of Christ, what can I say? Uh, not only is it very important, it's essential. It's critical. It's all important. And it's not just a symbol. Don't, you know, when John talks about, you know, the blood of Jesus in verse 5, this is not one of those symbols. This is literal. This is literal, okay? In the Old Testament, and we'll finish with this, the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, God taught his people. And this comes out of Leviticus 17, verse 11. He said, the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you upon the altar, the animal sacrifice, to make atonement for the soul, for it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. Now, guys, that just, just wasn't the old covenant. It also applies to the new covenant. Whereas the old covenant, God allowed animals to be a substitute, but those, the blood of those animals never took away sin. It temporarily covered sin uh, until the next time a person sinned, they would have to bring another animal. Uh, but in the new covenant, Jesus, the Lamb of God, went to the cross and died and washed us completely from our sins once and for all. Once and for all. But it's the blood. Nobody can get to heaven except through what Jesus did on Calvary's cross. I don't care how religious they think they are or how many good works they do. The Bible is very clear. The only way we come can come to the Father is through Jesus, and in particular, through His blood, which He shed on Calvary's cross. Hebrews 9, verse 22. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. There's no, there's no forgiveness. Without the we couldn't die for our sins. Obviously, sinners can't die for sinners. It would take the death of the righteous, the innocent, uh, the spotless uh, Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who alone could die in our place uh, to redeem us um, back to God. I love the, um, the hymn written by William Cowper. Uh, there is a fountain. I'll just read to you one small portion. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose and sinner, excuse me, and sinners plunged with beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. All their guilty stains. I just wanted to emphasize this because today we are seeing apostasy in the church. And it some of it takes the form of that Jesus' blood didn't purchase our sins. Um, some are ashamed of the gospel. Of course, the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross, his death for us, is the heart of the gospel. Without the shedding of blood, there's no gospel. There's no Without Jesus' blood uh, being shed, there's no gospel, there's no salvation, there's no forgiveness. All right? and, but they're saying that, no, no, his blood didn't. Uh, you know, it, he died on the cross to, to be an, a wonderful example of servanthood. But it, the blood meant nothing. And they try to tell people today, these are apostates, heretics, that, you know, um, you, you, you don't have to believe in Jesus to go to heaven. Uh, he's a great example, but if you have a sincere faith or you're a Muslim or a Buddhist or a, a Muslim, or, excuse me, or a Confucianist, whatever, you're going to get to heaven. We are in the last days. The Bible says in the last days, people would be ashamed of the gospel. And, uh, but Paul said, I'm not ashamed of it. It is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. Well, guys, that's it for now. A lot of information, okay? A lot of information. I'll have these notes uh, on our website by tomorrow uh, uh, morning. So if you want to just uh, download them, you can go over them again and look at the uh, scripture references and so on. But uh, look, I promise you uh, that we won't be going this slow through the rest of the study, okay? Uh, it's just that these first few chapters are so relevant to us. I know people want to quickly get through the first five chapters and get into chapter six where all the judgments start. But that really doesn't affect the church. We're going to be out of here, as we're going to find out. Uh, we'll be raptured out of here before those start. So what really pertains to us is the first five chapters, and I think in particular chapters two and three. So don't rush it. Let's enjoy it. And uh, we'll get to chapter six uh, soon enough. But uh, so God, may God just you know continue to bless these studies in his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for these studies in your word. 
Father, we pray that you would always be our teacher by your spirit, that you would open our eyes to uh, understand all the things you have placed here for our learning. And we just thank you, Lord, that uh, you have given us in this book things that, uh, revealing to us things that are coming, that, uh, you know, we are ready, and uh, so on. So, Lord, we ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. Keep us all safe and healthy. Uh, protect us from this virus stalking the earth. And, Lord, we thank you. We ask you to bless the rest of our week. Uh, and we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful evening.